Well, it's good to be with you, good to see you, good to worship with you. Great to see the sea of blue shirts uh, among us. Thank you uh, for, for your presence here. Uh, we heard from Tracy a little bit at the beginning about kind of what went on this weekend, but I think a, a word of gratitude is uh, warranted for Tracy and all of those who labored over the weekend to make this ministry possible. So I would like to ask you, although it might make someone comfortable, I'd like to ask you if you played a part in leading or hosting or supporting the ministry this weekend, would you stand very quickly so that we can give thanks to your investment? Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Those investments matter. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Well, if you're on the front end of a yearly Bible reading plan, as some of you may be, there's a, there's a decent chance that you're currently reading the chapters late in the book of Genesis that we will uh, spend the next few months together uh, studying uh, on, on Sunday mornings. The story of Joseph is among the, the most artfully crafted narratives in the Bible, and without a doubt, it's among its best-known stories, uh, even in, in the world, from Broadway's amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat to a DreamWorks animated feature a few years back. Joseph's journey from prisoner's pit to Pharaoh's palace has been the subject even of the world's arts and entertainment industry. So fascinating and surprising are the twists and turns of this historical account. And of course, beyond just being a memorable story, it resounds with truths too precious to ignore. The events of Joseph's life, depicted in Genesis chapters 37 through 50, illustrate in real-life examples the dangers of family dysfunction and brokenness, the importance of personal holiness, the power of forgiveness among other important lessons. But more importantly than all of that, they reveal to us a God who is never out of his depth, who never wastes a moment of our suffering, who never fails to keep a promise, and who is always working to redeem our lives from the depths of human sin and brokenness. But before we get to Joseph, we need to set his story within the context of Genesis so we'll understand how it functions within the book and within redemptive history as a whole. So the book of Genesis, of course, is the Bible's first book. And Genesis is structured around the repeated Hebrew term toledoth, which means generations. And so there are 10 distinct sections in Genesis that each begin with this phrase, these are the generations of, and then fill in the blank. And so here they are really quickly. You don't need to try to write all this down, but just so you have a sense of what is covered, the scope of what's covered in the book of Genesis, the generations of the heavens and the earth in chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of Adam in chapter five, verse one, the generations of Noah in six, nine. The sons of Noah, 10, 1. 
Shem, 11.10. The generations of Terah, 11.27. Terah, by the way, is Abraham's father. The generations of Ishmael, one of Abraham's sons, in chapter 25, verse 12. The generations of Isaac, his other son and the son of promise, in 25.19. The generations of Esau, in chapter 36, verse 1. And then finally, the tenth and final of these sections, the generations of Jacob, which begins in chapter 37, verse 2. So Genesis tells the stories of these generations, and it covers an enormous amount of ground in the first 11 chapters. So if you're looking at the book of Genesis, you'll see chapters 1 through 11 go from the creation of the world and the fall of humanity into sin up through the, the flood in Noah's day, many generations later, and then the, the repopulating of the earth and the building of the Tower of Babel. A whole huge range of time is covered in the first 11 chapters. And then chapters 12 through 50 zoom in and focus on just one family. And the rest of Genesis, chapter 12 all the way through chapter 50, are about one family. As John Walton says it, the blessing in Genesis 1 to 11, be fruitful and multiply, becomes a promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And then the rest of the narrative in Genesis follows how either that covenant, is, that covenant promise is progressing or God is overcoming obstacles to it. And more often than not, that's the case because people have a way of bungling it all up and God has to come in and fix their messes. And so a lot of Genesis is about people's depravity and how God overcomes that depravity in order to keep the promise of blessing and land and descendants and that final faithful seed in action. And so when we're dropping into Genesis in the middle, as it were, which is what we'll do to study the life of Joseph, we can't lose sight of the all-important details of God's covenant with Abraham. It is right there throughout. And so we'll revisit it often in the course of our study to, to keep our eye on how the Abrahamic covenant is unfolding in the Joseph narrative. So then in chapter 37, if it's in chapter 12, it began zooming in on one family, but multiple generations of it. In chapter 37, it slows down even more, and the remaining 14 chapters of Genesis cover only one generation the sons of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who God renames Israel. And while Joseph is neither the oldest of Jacob's sons, nor the son from whose line ultimately the Messiah would come, nevertheless, he plays an extremely important role in the success of God's covenant promises, and thus he is the central figure in the book's final lengthy section in Genesis 37 to 50. I've titled this series, Rising, for a few reasons that I think will probably become clearer as we work our way through Joseph's story. For one thing, it's a story of ascension, that is, a rise to the throne, a rise to authority of kingly dominion. And as the narrative tracks this upward progression of Joseph to a place of political influence, it develops the essential biblical motif, theme of kingdom and dominion. 
Secondly, it's a story of resurrection. Indeed, it's the original rags-to-riches story paradigm, beginning in the deepest depths and climbing to staggering heights. Now, there's no literal death and resurrection in, uh, in these passages, but it's hard to miss the arc of Joseph's story as one that takes him from a literal pit, as though dead, into a new and exalted and previously unfathomable life of blessing and abundance. And not merely abundance for the sake of personal wealth and prosperity, but for the purpose of preserving the life of God's people and spreading his shalom, his peace to the nations around them. And that detail hints at why the series subtitle is Joseph's Story and Yours. You see, God's generous provision and meticulous providence in the life of Joseph aren't just the makings of a great story, though it is a great story. They are necessary events for the preservation of God's people, the continuation of the promised seed, the eventual birth of his Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and your salvation. And if you are trusting in Christ for salvation and new life, then your story is a story of resurrection too, much like Joseph's. But I'm getting ahead of myself, starting to preach, uh, even though we haven't started looking at Joseph's story yet. So let's go ahead and put our eyes at the beginning of this story in Genesis chapter 37, if you're using one of those hardback ESV Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's on page 31. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you're not sure how to get there, page 31 in those particular Bibles will get you there. Beyond that, you'll have to look at a table of contents for help. All right, we're going to read the first four verses and then uh, we'll just kind of walk through the story together. My aim, Lord willing, is to get through verse 11 this morning, all right? Chapter 37, beginning verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So the story begins. Verse 1 tells us that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. That is the land of Canaan. That is the land that God promised to give to Abraham's offspring. But currently is a land that is yet occupied by many different peoples. So they haven't become a nation, and they haven't come to fully occupy this land yet, but this is where Jacob and his growing family are living. And we're told in verse 2 that Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Shouldn't surprise us that they're a family of shepherds. By this time in the story, Jacob has acquired an abundance of wealth, including herds and livestock, and so it would be necessary for his 12 sons to keep themselves busy tending to their many animals. 
we get two women's names here, and they're called the wives of Jacob, but truly they're the, the servants or the handmaidens of Jacob's two wives. Jacob married Leah, and then he married Rachel, and they each had hand servants, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, respectively. And so between these, who served as surrogate mothers, basically, uh, for the wives. And so between these four women, Jacob has these 12 sons and one daughter. And the second youngest of these sons is Joseph. Now that Joseph brings a bad report. So they were out in the field shepherding the flocks. And Joseph comes back home to his father with a bad report about his brothers. And that fact alone indicates that Jacob has given Joseph a role of leadership and oversight of his brothers that typically would have been reserved for the eldest, which would be Reuben, if you're keeping track. So the fact that, that Jacob has given Joseph this sort of position of prominence tells us a little bit about what we're going to find explicitly in just a moment, begins to hint at it. In addition, a bad report about these fellows would not be terribly hard to believe if you've been reading Genesis up to this point. Joseph's older brothers are a rather rough and reckless bunch of guys. We've seen an unsuspecting massacre of a whole city by two of them. We've seen adultery and incest, among others. They're not exactly a righteous bunch of people. So it wouldn't be terribly surprising to find that Joseph, in overseeing his brothers, had some bad things to say about what they were doing while they were out shepherding the flock. But if you wonder whether bestowing such a responsibility upon the, the little brother might ruffle some feathers within the family while well, your suspicions are confirmed by the next verse, which explicitly tells us, verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Joseph was the firstborn to his favorite wife. Lots of favorites going on here. And then she had one other son, Benjamin, and she died in childbirth. And so Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin, are the last two of Jacob's sons and the only two that were born to his wife, Rachel. And so the child of his old age seems to indicate this, the position of the firstborn of his favored wife who has now died. And so perhaps he's ingratiated himself to him in this way. And Jacob in this favoritism, is repeating the same error of his own parents. You'd like to think that people can learn from their own experiences, but we're sometimes slow, aren't we? Jacob is repeating the same error of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, who each had a favored son among their twins. Jacob was the younger, Esau was the elder, and given the fact that Jacob was not his father's favorite, You'd think that he might be aware enough of the pain caused by such a preference that he would be careful not to perpetuate it, but I digress. And this isn't the first indication that we have that Joseph was his father's favorite. If you were looking at the story that led up to this, back in chapter 33, when Jacob was about to encounter Esau for the first time after many years, and Esau, for a time, was breathing murderous hatred toward Jacob... And he's told that Esau is approaching with 400 men. So Jacob assumes Esau has massacre on his mind. 
And so he arranges his company in a very strategic way. And we're told in Genesis chapter 33, uh, here's how he arranged them. The servants with their children in front, then Leah, that's his first wife, with their children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So they're going to encounter Esau and his 400 men in reverse order of importance, it seems. Jacob is putting his most prized people, his favorite wife and his favorite son, in the very back of the caravan to avoid them encountering Esau and his murderous army. And that was when Joseph was a baby. So this has been going on for a while. Unless Jacob's other sons be left to merely speculate about their father's potential soft spot for Joseph, he gives the boy a special gift, as if to broadcast his preference to the others, we're told, and he made him a robe of many colors. The phrase in Hebrew is unusual, and if you read any commentaries on this, you'll have lots of arguments about what is going on here with this robe of many colors. It occurs only here, and then in 2 Samuel 13, 18, where it refers to a royal garment worn by the daughter of King David, Tamar. So a possible translation, and if you might have a footnote in your Bible that says, or something like this, another possible translation of this Hebrew phrase is a robe with long sleeves. Most English translations follow the Greek translation of the Hebrew in, in that it is a many-colored robe. But whatever the case, whether it's a colorful robe or a robe with long sleeves, the point of it is clear. This is not the clothing of a worker. The robe represents his elevated status in the family. And indeed, the next time we see the brothers go out to pasture, Joseph doesn't go with them. So as one commentator I read suggested, perhaps Joseph is back home with his feet up on the couch in his fancy robe while the rest of the brothers are out working in the field. So clearly this does not lend to uh, family unity. But I want you to notice this possible connection to the robe in 2 Samuel 13. Given the motif of kingdom and the kingly expectation embedded in the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, I would suggest to you that the subtle overtones of royalty associated with this robe are not accidental. In other words, I think Moses intends his readers to make a connection between the robe that, J that Jacob bestows upon his son Joseph and the, the image of royalty, the image of ruling. Verse 4 tells us, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Surprise, surprise. Jacob's preferential treatment of Joseph has precisely the effect you would expect it to. Literally, they could not speak peacefully to him is they could not say shalom to him. Almost like they can't even greet him. They will not give him the time of day. I can't stand to be in Joseph's presence. I don't want to look at Joseph. I don't want to think about Joseph. I cannot even say shalom, which was a common greeting to him. This, by the way, is the first of three times that we're told in this passage that his brothers hated him. See also verse 5 and then verse 8, which we'll get to in a minute. Maybe their feelings toward him will be an important detail in this story if we're hearing it so many times. 
Well, before we see how the wheels of this story start turning, or coming off, as it were, perhaps a word of encouragement is in order. This is Jesus' family tree. This is the family of Abraham, the progenitors of the nation of Israel, the seedbed of God's covenant people, and they are an utter, absolute, unqualified, dysfunctional mess. Does that maybe make you feel a little bit better about your own life and brokenness and your own messy relationships? Matt Harmon says, none of the circumstances of their lives were outside God's sovereign control for a microsecond. He knew what would happen and how he would use every scrap of the pain, suffering, and dysfunction to shape the individual lives of the members of this family into something noble and great, and thus to accomplish his own redemptive purposes, both for this family and through them for the entire world. Broken families, fear not. The God of Joseph is on the job. Your situation is by no means beyond the reach of his redeeming grace. All right, so the family dysfunction that we're beginning to get a picture of here is just the context for what God's going to do. Nothing's really happened yet. What God's about to do is light a spark in the powder keg of that brokenness that sets off a chain of events that would change this family forever and indeed change the world. How's that for a setup? Let's look together at verses 5 through 11. I'll read all of those and then we'll talk about them. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to it, to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now this may be a good time to point out to you that Yahweh is rarely spoken of or even explicitly seen in these chapters. The Joseph narrative unfolds much like the book of Esther, where an omniscient narrator recounts the details of the story without providing much commentary. There's very little theological evaluation of what's going on from the pen of Moses. We just see things happen, and we hear characters speak, and the reader is sort of tasked with deciphering uh, what's going on and how God may be at work. In fact, Esther's book is famous for the fact that Yahweh is never even mentioned. The Joseph story is similar, 
And the reader now has to, to come to understand this unfolding drama with a watchful eye for where God shows up. So let me ask you this question. Have you seen him yet? Do you see him here? I think we do. Look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And again down in verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. Where do these dreams come from? Are they concoctions of Joseph's subconscious? Is he just playing out some fantasy of superiority or expressing delusions of grandeur while he sleeps? I don't think so. These dreams are planted in Joseph's mind by God himself, and they serve two important functions. Number one, they foretell the future. That is, they announce what's going to happen before it comes to pass. The foreshadowing is thick here that the images in Joseph's dream of his family bowing down to him may be more than just a flight of fancy. In this sense, they are prophetic dreams, which by definition are from God. So the dream that Joseph had come from God, and they foretell the future. Number two, they propel their own fulfillment. It is Joseph's reporting of these dreams to his brothers and then to his father that actually begins to turn the gears of the story toward the events that will ultimately lead to their becoming a reality in the future, years down the line. And so they, in a way, become a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the very reporting of the dreams is the spark that gets the gears turning that will eventually lead to their fulfillment, their coming to pass in real life. A side note with some foreshadowing of my own, it's not the last time dreams will play an important role in Joseph's life. So let's look at the content of these two dreams and the responses of Joseph's family. We have two distinct dreams and then two distinct sets of responses or really interpretations. This is how his family members understand them. Dream number one is in verses six and seven. So Joseph and his brothers are all in a field binding sheaves, that is, bundling up uh, stalks of grain, right? And Joseph's sheaf of grain arises and stands upright, and his 11 brothers' sheaves bow down to his sheaf. That's the Hebrew shakal, to bow before. Remember that. That's the first mention of this bowing down. Dream number two is in verse 9. And the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down, shakah, to Joseph. That's the second bow down. And it's the sun and the moon and the stars to Joseph himself, apparently. He does, he's not represented in this dream by some other celestial image. It just says that the sun and the moon and these 11 stars are bowing down to me. So that's the content of the dreams. They're pretty simple. These distinct images, one in the field with these sheaves of grain bowing down to Joseph's sheaf, and one in the heavens, as it were, with the sun and the moon and stars bowing down to Joseph. Let's look at how his brothers interpret the first dream in verse 8. Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? 
That sounds repetitive in English, but they're two distinct words. The first one, are you indeed to reign, is the Hebrew malak, which is where the word king comes from. Melech is the noun form of that. So it is kingly authority. Are you to be king over us? And then that second one, or are you indeed to rule over us, is the Hebrew mashal, which means to exercise dominion. So the more clunky English translation would be, are you indeed to be king over us, or are you indeed to exercise dominion over us? So his brothers obviously understand Joseph's dreams to indicate that he, Joseph, will exercise a kingly authority over them at some point. And his father's interpretation of the second dream accords much with what the brothers determined from the first one. Down in verse 10, after Joseph reports his, dreams about the sun, his dream about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down, shachah, to him, Jacob says this, Shall I and your mother and your brothers bow, come to you and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Bow, there's the third use of shachah, uh, the, the bowing down. The bowing down in these dreams, repeated three times in verses 6 through 10, is obeisance, that is homage paid to royalty. It's a physical gesture of respect toward one in a position of authority. And so the brothers and Jacob clearly recognize what's being put forward in these dreams is Joseph in a position of kingly authority, and his family in a position of bowing themselves in homage, in obeisance to his rule. So they recognize the theme of both of Joseph's dreams quite clearly. The immediate effect of these dreams upon Joseph's brothers is that they hate him all the more. And also, verse 11, that they're jealous of him. Why him? Why not me? Right? Why can't I be the one that everybody bows down to? Probably a little bit of competition in their hearts. Their hatred and jealousy will propel the plot forward in our passage next week. But before we leave this opening scene of the story, I want to highlight for you how significant these dreams of Joseph are. And to do that, I need to show you that there is an expectation of kingship embedded throughout the book of Genesis. And it's no accident that royal imagery and ascension play such a vital part of the book's final narrative in this Joseph story. Number one, God is the sovereign ruler over creation. God creates the world by divine decree. Let there be light, and there is light. Let there be land, and there is land. Let there be creatures, and there are creatures. He commands, and it is so. He commanded, and they were created, as the psalm says. And he places mankind in the garden, and he gives them commands. Eat of anything you like, cultivate the garden, but don't eat of this one tree, right? So a king giving commands to those under his authority. God is king over his people from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2. Secondly, God makes man in his image and invests them with kingly authority. When God created 
Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, were told, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and beasts of the field, right? And then the creation mandate to Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is ruling. This is dominion. And so God... Excuse me. So man in his unfallen state is co-regent with God. God exercising his rule over creation through his image-bearing agents. Third, Noah in Genesis chapter 6 is presented as a new Adam in chapter 6. Not in those words, but he is tasked with repopulating the earth after the judgment of the flood... The creation mandate is reiterated to him. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So Noah, again, co-regent with God to exercise dominion over the world. So this is baked in to the very shape of how the world was created, how humanity was created, what God was doing from the start. But that royal expectation becomes more explicit in the Abrahamic covenant. And the promises that God makes to Abraham appear in different places. It starts in Genesis 12, and then Genesis 15, there's the actual act of covenant making, and it's reiterated in Genesis 17. And different details sort of emerge in the different places. But in Genesis chapter 17, God says this to Abraham in Genesis 17, 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then a few verses later, in Genesis 17, 16, of his wife Sarah, he says, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So God is promising Abraham, the first person in this whole family, I'm going to bring nations from you. Which, what is that but a politically organized culture and kingdom and society? And kings will come from you. And that royal promise, this is the fifth and final step we'll take in this, in this exercise, that royal promise is reiterated to Jacob in chapter 35, verse 11. Just a little bit before we get to Joseph's narrative, God says to Jacob, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So, By the time we get to the generations of Jacob in Genesis 37, the expectation of kingly dominion among God's people is a thoroughly established narrative thread within the story of Genesis. And it's explicitly included in God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point of that thread is that God is in the process of reversing the curse wherein man's co-regency with God was demolished by sin. In other words, the gospel in Genesis has everything to do with God restoring the royal identity of his people through the sin-destroying work of a conquering king who would come from Abraham's family. That is the expectation that the reader of Genesis has built up. And so, with this context in mind, as we see these dream images depicting Jacob and his family bowing themselves in homage to Joseph, we can understand why, even after rebuking him 
for his dreams, because he has to do that in public. That, how, that's ridiculous. How dare you have a dream like that? We're told in verse 11, his father kept the saying in mind. Something's going on here. Maybe this is the one. Maybe my son, my favored son, Joseph, is the king that's been prophesied, that's been promised throughout these generations. Sam Ahmadi, a pastor and theologian, summarizes, readers of Genesis have awaited the arrival of a royal seed through the line of Abraham. Now, in the opening verses of the final Toledoth section, that is at Generations, the introduction of Joseph heightens the anticipation. Readers in touch with the royal theme cannot help but question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect another? From our vantage point in redemption history, we know that Joseph indeed would prove not to be the one who is to come. The point of tracing the thread of kingship and dominion in the story of Joseph is not ultimately to point us to Joseph, but to point us to the one whom Joseph foreshadows. Joseph's dreams will have a particular fulfillment in time and space as we'll see later in the narrative. But their ultimate purpose is not to lead us to that partial fulfillment in ancient Israel's history, but to lead us to their fuller, more complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It is Christ's ascension to the throne room of heaven that finally restores the the world what was lost by sin. It is the just and benevolent reign of King Jesus in which all the promises of blessing and inheritance find their ultimate expression. And it is by turning from your sin and bowing yourself in homage to this king that the broken, dysfunctional pieces of your own life can be redeemed and you can be welcomed as a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. Friends, won't you bow your heart to him? Won't you turn toward him today in repentance and faith and yield your life to him as your savior and king? Let's pray together.